Episode 63, The Mission to Lead. The journey of the Israelites is coming to an end. Or is it the beginning? Moses had been told that he will not lead the Israelites into the promised land. With that, there must be another leader to take the role of leadership within the tribes of Israel. Welcome to the History of the Bible. In the last episode, we talked about the enticement that the women did to draw the men of Israel into worshiping other gods and goddesses, mostly Baal, the god of fertility. This would cause an epidemic to come into the camp of the Israelites. Also, the Lord would call for Moses to execute the leaders of the clans that allowed their members to pursue foreign deities. Often, it was the leaders themselves leading their clan to pursue their cultish practices. However, we end it with the people beginning to realize that one day they will possess the long-awaited promised land. With that, calls for the transition in leadership. Because Moses disobeyed God and not speaking to the rock, instead he hit the rock with his staff, Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. When Moses heard that he would not be the man that would bring the Israelites into the promised land, he asked the Lord who should take his place in leading the Israelites. This is when the Lord chooses Joshua to be Moses' successor. Although Joshua had already been serving Moses, as he was the second in command, so to speak, to that of Moses. Since the Ten Commandments were given to Moses in the wilderness, Joshua had been by Moses' side. He was learning and understanding what it meant to lead a nation. It's believed that Joshua was born a slave in Egypt, that he was one of the very few to be born in Egypt and be able to see the promised land. The only other person to do so is Caleb, Joshua was not always his name, though. Originally, his name was Hoshea, which means salvation. He would have this name up until he went out with the spies to the land of Canaan. When the spies were sent out is when it is recognized that Moses calls Hoshea Joshua. However, when the spies were sent into the land, it wasn't the first time that Joshua is introduced. He has been the man that led the Israelites into battle against the Amalekites when they attacked the Israelites in the wilderness. Never is Joshua introduced as Hoshea only before the spies were sent out is his original name mentioned. Scholars believe that either Moses changed his name when Joshua first became his disciple, or that because Moses wrote the books, he was writing from the perspective of Joshua's new name. Either way, Joshua's name was changed from its original. The name Joshua in Hebrew means Yahweh is deliverance, as the name in Hebrew is pronounced Yahshua. Although it isn't for sure why Moses did choose him, or if Moses even did choose him at all, it could have been that the Lord told Moses to begin training Joshua very early on in the journey. Ever since the golden calf incident, 
Joshua was at the foot of the mountain while Moses received the Ten Commandments. He sat outside the tabernacle while Moses went into the tent to speak to the Lord. Joshua was following and learning as much as he could from Moses. Eventually, it would allow him to step into the leadership role that Moses was leaving. Although in Numbers 27, verse 17, Moses asked the Lord who should take his place as leader. In verse 18, the Lord tells Moses to take Joshua and make him the new leader of the tribes of Israel. So Moses was not intentionally training Joshua to become the next leader. Or when it came time for Moses to pass on the role, he was following up with the Lord to see who the Lord wanted to take the position. Joshua was the one of the 12 spies that were sent into the land of Canaan to spy it out. He and Caleb were the only two of the 12 that believed in the promises of God and wanted to go and possess the land. However, no one else from the Israelites' camp wanted to do so. Therefore, they spent the next 40 years or so in the wilderness. Tradition holds that when Joshua was sent into the land of Canaan to spy it out, he was 43 years old, making him about 83 or so when he would step into the leadership role within Israel. Despite his age, we'll see that Joshua and Caleb, for that matter, were not affected by their age and leading the Israelites in the coming battles against the Canaanites. Joshua was the son of Nun, a member of the tribe of Ephraim, one of sons of Joseph. It says that he was a chief among his tribe. This would be the man that Moses would pass on the responsibility of leading the Israelites into the promised land and conquering the people within. He was perfect for the job. He already had military experience, most likely from Egypt, or he had a natural inclination towards military leadership. It also could be that as a chief, they were expected to lead their tribe into war. For the journey from Egypt and into the wilderness, Joshua was placed in charge of the militia. He was a man that fully trusted what the Lord said and acted on his beliefs. This included the battles. Joshua's story is just beginning within the Israelites' camp. However, Moses' journey is about to end. Therefore, it was time to make it public that the leadership would be moved from Moses to Joshua. The Lord told Moses to take Joshua and have him stand before Eleazar the high priest and the whole congregation of Israel. Here, Moses was to commission Joshua by laying his hands on him and passing on the authority to lead the tribes of Israel. He would become the leader of all the tribes. This is different in the passing of authority in a tribal society. Tribal societies, it was made up often of chieftains that voted or raised someone within the chiefs to lead them. However, it was Moses that decided to raise Joshua to be the leader. Now, Joshua was already a chief in his tribe, so Moses did stick with the traditional way of raising a leader from within the tribe's chiefs. 
This is almost more like a king passing his authority to his successor rather than the tribes making the decision. The laying of the hands of Moses onto Joshua was a sign of passing on one's authority. It has often been found in other ancient societies that the means of officially transferring authority from one person to another was done through the laying of the hands. For example, tomb carvings from Egypt show the king of Egypt passing on authority to their successor through the laying of hands. There's something very interesting in the passing of authority from Moses to Joshua, though. In Numbers 27, verse 20, the Lord tells Moses to give Joshua some of his authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. Scholars believe that when it says that Joshua was to have some of Moses' authority, it was not talking about Joshua leading the people. Rather, Scholars believe that Moses was not to pass on the direct communication that Moses had with God. The right to lead the people would be given to Joshua, but not the direct line of communication that Moses had with God. Instead, the responsibility of hearing from God was given to the high priest. This would be Eleazar at the time of Joshua's commissioning. The high priest would inquire what the Lord was saying for Joshua, and this was to be done through the Urim. The Urim was given to the high priest along with his priestly garments, and it would be carried by the high priest in his breastplate. The high priest would use it to get oracles from the Lord that he would then pass on to the leader of the Israelites. In the end, Joshua was the one that received the commission to lead the Israelites. So whenever they went out or came back in, either for battle or to conquer the land, Joshua was to be their leader, bringing them out and back to camp safely. But before Moses would pass on, Lord had one more thing for him to do, remind the Israelites. Well, more than one thing, but for now he was to remind the Israelites and then take vengeance on the Midianites. Before we talk about the Israelites taking vengeance on the Midianites, the Lord wanted to remind the people. Remind the people of the offerings, the daily, monthly, yearly, and offerings for feasts to remind them to pursue the Lord when they came into the promised land and to not chase after other nations' gods and goddesses. In essence, this was the first time that the Israelites received a schedule, so to speak, for their offerings. Although the high priest knew when and how to make the sacrifices, every day two lambs were to be sacrificed, one in the morning and one in the evening. As a side note, this is why Jewish and Christian traditions throughout the centuries have done prayers in the morning and evenings as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Every Sabbath, another two lambs were to be sacrificed. This would be in addition to the two lambs every day. On the first day of the month, also called the new moon sacrifices, two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat were to be sacrificed. And if this day landed on the Sabbath, 
the Sabbath sacrifices and the two lambs a day would be offered. All the sacrifices would be added on top of each other. As we'll see, different feasts had specific amounts of sacrifices, but those were in addition to the daily two lambs, the Sabbath, and the new moon sacrifices. Then there were to be sacrifices for different feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Each day was to have two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat offered up in a sacrifice. The Feast of Pentecost was the same as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first day of the seventh month, or the day of the beginning of the agriculture year, often called the New Year's Day, was to have one bull, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat sacrificed. The Day of Atonement would have the same sacrifice as the New Year's Day sacrifices. For the Feast of Booths, the first day was to be a sacrifice of 13 bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs, and 1 goat. Up through the seventh day, that was to be sacrificed every day, except the number of bulls changed. Every day of the feast, it would go down by one. So the second day was needing 12 bulls sacrificed. The third day was 11 bulls, and so on and so forth. All until the seventh day, it was seven bulls needing to be sacrificed. Then, on the eighth day of the Feast of Booth, one bull, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat were to be sacrificed. All these sacrifices were public meaning that these were done by the high priest on a regular schedule. This did not include any sacrifices that families or individuals brought to the tabernacle to be offered, and these sacrifices only counted the public animal offerings. None of this includes the grain offerings, the drink offerings, and wave offerings. It's believed that just for a lamb to be sacrificed, it must have been about a half gallon of flour, a quart of oil, and a quart of wine offered along with it. For a bull, it would have been double this. When Moses was reminding the Israelites to pursue the Lord, yes, it was about the sacrifices that were supposed to take place publicly through daily and festival sacrifices. But it was more about the people remembering to come and worship the Lord. The high priest would do the daily, weekly, and monthly sacrifices, but the whole nation would gather together for the feasts. This was a time to celebrate what the Lord was doing in their lives through provision, protection, and just celebrating the goodness of God. Then, on top of the public offerings, there would be the personal offerings that individuals would bring to the tabernacle to have offered. These would be offerings from vows, free will offerings, and fellowship offerings. Now that the Israelites had been reminded to pursue the Lord in the promised land and to continue worshiping him through sacrifices, it was time to take vengeance on the Midianites. This was one of the last tasks that the Lord wanted Moses to do. Although there will be a couple of little last minute things that Moses will do before he dies. At this period of history, the Midianites were more of a nomadic nation. Often, when nations were nomadic, 
They are smaller groups of tribes and clans. This is why in Numbers 31, verse 4, Moses gathers a thousand men from each tribe, making the army that was to go to battle against the Midianites of 12,000 men. This campaign against the Midianites was not about conquering the land because they lived outside the land of Canaan. This was all about taking vengeance from the Lord on the Midianites for what they had done. It was the Midianites that were the ones to take to heart the advice of Balaam, the diviner. They got the women of the nation to seduce the men of Israel into following other gods instead of Yahweh. So 12,000 men were fully supplied for battle. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the high priest, the grandson of Aaron, was to go out with the army, almost like an army chaplain. With him, Phinehas took articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. Now, when it says he took articles from the sanctuary, scholars are still in debate about it. Some say that he took the Ark of the Covenant, but the argument against this is if it were the Ark, why not just say that like it does in other sections of the Bible? Other scholars believe that the only items that were taken with the army were the trumpets. But then why would the verse itself say that Phinehas took articles from the tabernacle and the trumpets for signaling? More on the trumpets in a second. Other scholars believe that it was the Urim, the item that would be used to get answers from the Lord. However, that was to be used by the high priest and was always on him. Never was it in the tabernacle. But it could have been that those articles that were brought from the tabernacle were things that would later purify the army after the battle. As we'll see, once the battle was over, the Israelites had to purify themselves, but those additional items from the tabernacle were things to be used to purify the whole army. The trumpets, they were made out of hammered silver. From day to day, they were to be signals to the whole camp of the Israelites to come together or for just the leaders of the Israelites to come together. They were used to signal the moving out of the Israelites and what direction they were to be moved in. They were also used to signal the moving of the Israelites and what direction they were to move in. But when they were used for battle, they were to be blown before the army as a reminder that the Lord goes before them in the battle, calling on the Lord. We're going to pause right there and pick up the battle in the next episode. For now, Moses has commissioned Joshua to lead the Israelites after his death. So join us next time in episode 64, Battle with the Midianites. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile.